0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at choosewood.com.
1: This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio.
2: I'm Elaine Cha.
3: Each one was like a little puzzle piece in... I
2: look at it in the attics. I usually find them in attics and basements. And it's very gossipy,
3: <laughs> so it gives you all sorts of insights into life.
2: They're trying to decide what should be taught.
3: With history, you you have to let the dust settle a little bit.
1: On today's show, we're talking about St. Louis history in the present. To be more specific, I mean African Americans and their rich and inspiring history since the city's founding in 1764. As for the present part, well, that comes in two forms. First, it's a new book full of engrossing text, photos, documents, and images of artifacts called Black St. Louis. It's also the presence in studio of the two people who co-wrote the book. One is Calvin Riley, founder and director of the George B. Vachon Museum and antiques dealer and collector of Black Americana. Welcome, Calvin. All right.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And we also have Nini Harris, a historian and author of 15 books on St. Louis history. Welcome to you as well, Nini. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So glad to have you both. Let's start with your individual connections to St. Louis. What is your background or relationship to the city? Calvin?
2: Uh, Well, I grew up uh, in the city of St. Louis. Uh, My mother moved here from Mississippi in 1960, and so I grew up downtown St. Louis. Went to Patrick Henry School, and then uh, we moved into St. Louis Cochrane Housing Projects, and where we uh, Live a fairly good life. So we thought, I mean, it was clean. We couldn't mess up the walls. If we did, we had to clean them. You know, <laughs> so I, I, my mom taught us about going to get an education. She uh, so, spoke strongly about that uh, for us to get an education because she wanted to be a writer herself. Oh. She uh, told me she wanted to be a writer, but she, uh, some things happened where she didn't do that. So. Right. I feel like I've done that for her.
1: Right. So, And I think there's a lot of that that is certainly part of this book. Nini, for your part, what is your connection to St. Louis? How is it that your, your family came here? I'm born and bred here. Mm-hmm. And I went
3: to St. Louis Public Schools, <laughs> uh, Calvin Woodward Grade School. And in eighth grade, we had St. Louis history. And if we didn't pass that test for that subject, I didn't think we were ever going to get to go out of grade school onto a <laughs> greater, uh, uh, more life. I thought it was eighth grade forever. But more, I learned history from the old folks who lived in the neighborhood, who mm-hmm. used to tell their stories. They And they'd make cookies as they told their stories, and they'd be... Sp- feeding you sweets and talking about the depression or the 20s or the War And you heard so much in just listening to mm-hmm. them.
1: And so that too, given the the number of books that you have written about St. Louis, that mm-hmm. also shows up. We'd also like to invite you to the conversation this hour. Are you a Black St. Louis history buff? Is there a person, place, or thing you wish more people knew about? Give us a call at uh, 314-382-382. Uh, 8255, that's 382-TALK, or you can email us at talk at stlpr.org. Now, the Black history part I just mentioned in that call for engagement, how is it that Black history became a point of interest for you, Nini?
3: As part of St. Louis history, uh, in the early days of St. Louis, one-third of St. Louisans were of African descent. Uh, Then other groups came, lots of Irish and German and all sorts of other groups. But um, that rich part of our history has always been here throughout our entire over 250 years. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to study St. Louis history, you learn about black history as part of it, right. as part of a big picture mm-hmm. here of, of all different kinds of people sharing a city, sometimes successfully and sometimes not as successfully, mm-hmm. but ultimately we share a city and a history.
1: Mm-hmm. And that history is something, Calvin, you are very, um, you're very committed to. Not only have you lived as a black St. Louisan, but you are the the founder and director of a a whole museum that's devoted to that. Tell us about the George B. Vachon Museum.
2: The uh, George Vachon Museum is a home of St. Louis who uh, became history makers. A lot of them probably didn't know that, but they uh, they did great things here in St. Louis trying to make things better for the community. So when I clean out homes and locate the artifacts, I put them on display in the museum in order to tell their stories and what they had done and what they had accomplished here in St. Louis, and this book, Black
1: St. Louis, I imagine that it must have taken some time to put together. Uh, you know, given especially the the amount of time that it's covering, how is it that the two of you came together to work on this?
2: Well, Nini came uh, come to the museum. She brought tours there. And she talked to me about doing a book, and uh, I said, well, I don't know about doing a book. And uh, so she she kept on after me, and and, uh, eventually I agreed to doing a book, and we worked together, and and here we are. Yeah. (laughs) So,
1: obviously, artifacts. This is something that Calvin has at, at the museum. Was there some other reason you kept after him to make this thing happen, Nini?
3: It's just so important that we tell all these stories and look for whatever sources are out there for our history. I got to say I was really surprised and very happy to find, with searching, a lot of documentation of even the colonial era about people of African ancestry who lived here during the colonial era. So often, we just give up and say, oh, well, there's nothing there to tell us about the people who lived here in different circumstances in different times, but it is. Mm-hmm.
1: And in the collection that you have at George B. Vachon, are there documents like the ones Nini is talking about?
2: Yes, we have plenty of documents uh, that we can research to tell stories of what African Americans are doing here in St. Louis in the Mill Creek Valley and Kirkwood, Richmond Heights. All those uh, various areas, East St. Louis, you know, and, and uh, so, because these, it's his, his, his rich, it's still in, in uh, North St. Louis. And I tell people all the time, do not throw things away because this stuff is in people's basements, it's in their attics. Right now, as I speak in boxes, And a lot of people don't even, uh, they're not even aware that it's there.
1: Right, right.
3: Calvin found and took interest in things just like little snapshots from a family dinner in the 1950s and on their own those snapshot an individual photo might not tell a lot but when you put them together yep. and he would go to these yard sales and just buy or get whatever you could and you and the, each one was like a little puzzle piece in now of course the photographs those are more recent right the The old courthouse, the National Park Service, has tremendous documentation on the colonial era. Mm -hmm. And they, and particularly Dr. Bob Moore, were very helpful with um, locating material about African-Americans in the earliest days. So we are taking things from all different directions and all different aspects of this incredible story.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, is there an example perhaps of a, a story that you discovered through old records that uh, you were pouring over or pouring through, Nini, um, a, a record maybe that would not have looked like much of anything if you were not kind of looking at it the right way? Jeanette Fourchette.
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: and I found
3: several records of her in documents that are at the old courthouse, and um, she was a person of African ancestry from. Uh, she was in Cahokia, Illinois, the east side of the the area, and she had been given her freedom, and she came here, right. After Laclède founded St. Louis, and he gave her a grant of land, as he was doing with numerous people, so she had a plot of ground in the village. This free woman of color and a piece of farmland, and she was married to another free man, uh, to a, another free person of color, Gregoire, who was a blacksmith. Mm-hmm. When he passed away. There's. I found the marriage uh, license information. She remarried another person of color who was free, who was a gunsmith. So here is the evidence. Here is the documentation from the earliest days of this free African American community mm-hmm. that had so many skills and were playing such a part in creating our community.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the old cemeteries also contain a lot of history. Uh, I was just met with the Wildwood Historical Society, and they were telling me about an African American cemetery out there that they're they afraid that it's going to get lost. Mm. And so, uh, but those old cemeteries, they have tombstones that tell you about these people who lived uh, during these, these uh, old, early times.
1: So there's a connection. Mm. Wildwood is is a bit of a distance from right. where we are. Mm-hmm. But I think the extent to which this is not only about St. Louis City, but also this area right. in this region mm-hmm. and the uh, the way that people moved um, as as they were making their lives here. Calvin, is there anything among the artifacts that sort of harkens back to the, the life of, uh, of Jeanette uh, Fourchette? Is that right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what... What kind of lifestyle they may have had even, you know, back at that time?
2: Well, it was, it was I, mean, they, they, I mean, they might have been free at that time, but they were still treated badly. They were segregated, and uh, they couldn't do uh, things. They couldn't go places where they wanted to go. They had to go in particular areas. So uh, were they free? Uh, in, a, in a certain uh, sense, they were, but in a certain sense, they were not free because mm-hmm. they had to deal with that segregation, right? holding them back. They couldn't go to school, stuff like that, you know what I mean, until a certain period, you know, because Missouri had a law where it was illegal to teach African Americans how to read or write, mm-hmm. you know. So that's, you know, sad times that they were dealing with at the time. We right. don't think about that.
3: Well, and the public school system started in 1838. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it was very small and only did— dealt with a limited, very limited number of students. Right. But then the state in the 1840s outlawed uh, a teaching of African-Americans, even though there was this growing free community and a political atmosphere in St. Louis right. that was very opposed to the state policies. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until 1866 that public schools were opened for people of African ancestry. But back in Jeanette Fourchette's time, you just, in the colonial era, what I did was just read every document I could from that era to see what life was like at that time to try to get a picture of what life was like for a free woman of color mm-hmm. and someone who was enslaved And the 1787 census that was conducted by the Spanish gave a lot of clues, Mm -hmm. Um, and it it, it told you know just how this this seed of this free community had started, but um, and you saw most of the people who were enslaved being in it divided up like one person to a family there were very few instances where you saw large groups of people enslaved with one one person owning them they the men appeared to do mostly farm work the mm-hmm. women did the laundry, laundry the hauling of water the cooking all the th- the, the the taking care of the chickens the Cows that they had farm lots mm-hmm. in downtown sure. that were 120 by 150 feet, and they had animals and herb gardens there, and the 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 enslaved women would have been caring for those. Mm-hmm. Right. Now,
1: something with this book: the photographs are really, really interesting, and I say interesting because the uh, the span of of history that it is covering. Nina, you're talking about the colonial times. We're talking about Jeanette Fourchette. There were some who were free, who Mm. were able to move in a particular way. But for most African-American people in St. Louis, that was not the life that they could enjoy. And so one of the photographs, speaking of school, that really stands out to me are different pictures of classes, how is it that you have come to um, to have so many of these kinds of photographs, Calvin, in in the museum uh, and that have also been included in the book?
2: Uh, because I, uh, I, I conduct estate sales and I clean out of houses, I do uh, buyouts and homes. And so as, in doing that, I look for early, early uh, documents and I look in at attics. I usually find them in attics and basements uh, been in trunks for many, many years, kind of like when I found the Vashon artifacts. The Vashons came to St. Louis because uh, St. Louis public school teachers, the white teachers, did not want to teach the black children. And the, singular, uh, the Board of Education had to threaten them with their jobs to go in and teach the children. So the parents start protesting mm-hmm. and then. Uh, that's how the Vashines came here in 1880 yep. and became, uh, George Jefferson became principal of Delaney School mm-hmm. and principal of Color School No. 10, which later became Vashine Elementary.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back very shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Before the break, Calvin, you were talking about finding photos, and in particular, class photos at estate sales. Clearly, these were kept because they were important Mm -hmm. to people. And there are many of these kinds of photos in this book. What is important about artifacts like this?
2: Well, they they show that... um African Americans had pride. They wanted to go to school. They uh, enjoyed learning. They wanted to learn. They wanted to do better. The parents were pro- pushing that for the kids because despite being poor, a lot of the parents still want wanted their kids to progress and, uh, and to get an education. Mm-hmm. So that's very, very important. And that's what those photographs uh, demonstrate. They demonstrate that. You know, you see them going, uh, even college photographs. I got them from middle school, high school, elementary school, so Mm -hmm. it it shows how families made that progression.
1: Right, right. And the schools being anchors um, in neighborhoods that were very specifically um, built and developed by black St. Louisans is also something that that stood out. Um, In terms of what you found uh, in documentation, Um, or in stories that you heard from people, Nini, what is it about the the schools um, that people should be thinking about apart from just leaving with a a diploma?
3: Oh, it was a focus of life. And if you think back to, like, 1860, slavery, this is a slave state, and— uh, 2% of the population is African American. Only 2% more are free than living enslaved. But even the free, they cannot openly go to school. Beginning in, during the Civil War, we have waves of migrants coming up from the deep south for possibilities and opportunities in St. Louis to work and to go to school. And you see this excitement about school. And many of the people who were coming up for generations after the Civil War, they had been born, the parents or grandparents had been born in slavery. And now they could send their children to school in the morning. What? an inspiring moment for them to think, I am going to achieve and my children are going to learn. Mm-hmm. This is an extraordinary movement in history mm-hmm. and our schools, they did they did great work. St. Louis Public, I'm very proud of so many wonderful programs they had.
1: And this is something obviously the, the schools, it's been covered in other other books. Calvin, for your part, was there some particular reason that it was important to include this in this book that you co-authored?
2: Yes, because a lot of the people who I found artifacts of, they attended these segregated schools. They attended Sumner. They attended uh, Vashon. Uh, They uh, went to uh, Kirkwood, you know, and Mitchin uh, Park in those schools. So they, these people that experience that and they live that life. So it's very, very important to show that people need to see it so it's not forgotten and, uh, and it must be talked about. Mm-hmm. Across the country right now, they're trying to decide what should be taught in schools for African-American history. And my, my thing, I just say, tell the truth. Mm-hmm. That's all you got to do. You don't have to make anything up. The the documentation is there. Just tell the truth. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much.
1: Is there a story or some information, Nini, in the book um, that sort of speaks to what Calvin is talking about, maybe something that fills gaps um, that exist even with sort of the the number of books that already exist out there? Well,
3: you know, St. Louis... Public schools, again, start opening schools to serve black children in 1866. And the case is made very clearly by the school superintendent and then the president of the board that African Americans are paying taxes, they have a right to attend schools. Mm -hmm. And then they open more and more schools. And in 1875, the first high school for African Americans west of the Mississippi Sumner, a few years after that, they are hiring teachers of African ancestry, and they find in enrollment increases so in the among African Americans cuz now they have these role models teaching them mm-hmm. and then 1890 we have Stowe Teachers College it was then called Normal School that mm-hmm. was what schools for to become teachers were called were normal schools and i am impressed that the board saw the value in this and the importance and it it, it's interesting to me I went through the minutes of board meetings and found that like a an African-American school and a white school built same time very close to one another they spent the same amount per classroom on construction for each and that was surprising, and I was very happy to see it. Mm -hmm. It did surprise me, but I was happy to see that they had, per classroom, put aside the same amount of money.
1: Investment. Investment, mm -hmm.
3: that's right. So that was up. There were a number of things I found uplifting that we can take inspiration
1: from. Mm -hmm. This sort of thinking about the the world's of African-Americans in St. Louis. Something that also stood out to me among the photographs was um, the different kinds of photos there were. Uh, so the, the people who took them, there are some notes about that. Um, the notes on them, that was very interesting. So for example, uh, there's a, a photo that has on, written on it, come let's dance because I am in the mood and uh, in is underlined three times. There's also a photograph of a, a soldier in uniform standing um, in front of a bar, but he is so positioned so that horns are, are behind him. So the, the, the kind of humor that was involved, uh-huh. the way that the photographs not only demonstrate that uh, black St. Louisans were part of sort of a, a movement, but they were also just enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. Is that something that was important for you to incorporate here?
2: Uh, uh, yes. They, it just shows that they had—they were real people, even though uh, a lot of them had come out of slavery. They were real people that had feelings, and they enjoyed things just like other races did. They uh, li- liked to have good times. I mean, they weren't able to go and rent out of hotel rooms, but they would have what you call backyard parties, and uh, they would meet at each other homes and have parties in their homes and things like that. So they enjoyed life just like everyone else. In Meek Mill Creek Valley, they said they had hunk-a-tunk uh, uh, clubs down there. I mean, it was just um, where they had dance and they they just enjoyed themselves. So they they wanted to enjoy life like everybody else, mm-hmm. but they were still suppressed in certain areas. Right, right.
3: They built, in spite of everything, they built senses of community. Mm-hmm. Right after the Civil War, you see that the, through lodges and churches and brotherhoods, they're building community that strengthens one another. It's it's remarkable and again inspiring what they did.
1: Mm-hmm. The social milieu of Black St. Louisans is also something that was brought up in this book. Um, and I'm thinking specifically um, about Clamorgan. Um, and that was Cyprian Clamorgan, who was the grandson of a prominent West Indies native who arrived in St. Louis in 1780. And Cyprian Clamorgan wrote something called The Colored Aristocracy of St. Louis. Tell us a little bit about that. Ni.
3: Well, it was published in 1858, and he was writing specifically about the free community in st louis that involved it that had evolved here and it's very gossipy (laughs) so it gives you all sorts of insights into life he defined aristocracy unlike later in in local life he defined it purely by wealth and he He described one man, it was just amazing, Uh, William Johnson Sr., he told that he had bought, or he opened a barber shop Mm -hmm. in 1840. He had been a barber, he opened a shop, and said that he was very careful with his money, and was really careful, and saved $1,000. And and Johnson had the wisdom to buy a block of market and sell it then for a hundred thousand
1: so enterprise clearly enterprise. was part of this too mm-hmm. yeah we're going to take a quick break here but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation this is st. Louis on the air on st. Louis public radio
0: support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. choosewood.com. Welcome
1: back. Now, the the time frame here uh, it goes through just to two thousand, mm-hmm. apart from making sure that you did not um <laughs> you did not give yourselves too much work. Why is it that you decided just to cover that time period, Kelvin?
2: Well, I think that's a uh, it's a natural uh, period to stop at because a lot was going on during those periods, and we uh, covering people uh, pretty much who had. Live in segregated communities uh, when, they, when they first started, grew up in them, um, like Dr. Lincoln Do Good, uh Julius Hunter, Jordan Chambers, uh, J.B. Jet Banks, Oscar Foreman, who was uh, uh, one of the first black police officers allowed to wear a police uniform during the 1940s, mm-hmm. and uh, the Bruce Funeral Home people, the uh, funeral home I found. When I clean out funeral homes, yeah, uh, they tell great stories because they had to document the people who are buried, where they were buried, and all that. So, it's, it's uh, these people have a rich history of uh, St. Louis in their artifacts, and I think that's that's why it's important.
1: Mm-hmm. And for your part, limiting it to the year two thousand practically that's that's going to give you less work. But what is significant about that? It's
3: about having historical perspective. And that's about the time we have really strong introduction of social media, which seems to have speeded up changes. And with history, you you have to let the dust settle a little bit and see what happened with some perspective to it. Mm-hmm. And um, it it was not cutting work at all because we had plenty of things to research <laughs> right. and so much to write about yeah. that uh, it just helped us focus mm-hmm. more on on other eras.
1: Right. Now, one of the things that I noticed, I read in the end notes that the use of the term people of color, and it's the very first note, mm-hmm. we... I think, in, in this day and age, understand people of color in one way. But that has not always meant the same thing. Uh, and the same goes for the term refugees as well. So with people of color in particular, Nini, why was it important to uh, to be very clear about what that meant? Because it was defined
3: in the colonial mm-hmm. era in all the records. In the 1787 census, they tell how many people lived in St. Louis who were entirely of African ancestry, and how many were of part African and part European ancestry. And the people who were of part both African and European ancestry were described or as pardos mm-hmm. a Spanish a Spanish word they define it very clearly and then in the early 19th century there are references to people of color mm-hmm. so we used the historic terms as they were using them 200 years ago to get a sense of who was actually living here
1: mm-hmm. And the book also goes into um, the immigrants who came to this country, um, the kinds of relationships there were between immigrants from outside the United States um, with black folks who were here sort of given what the economic circumstances were, and then some of the limitations, obviously, you know, Calvin, you had touched upon. Whether you were free or not, there were still restrictions that made it difficult to make uh, the, the best life possible. Um, in, uh, in the book, there is a, a photo, and it's a, a description of exodusters, which I, I thought was a really interesting term. So you're nodding your head Mm-hmm. Um, Calvin, you described your families coming here, your mother's coming from Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Why is that an important thing to think about, um, sort of in this, in this context of people who have come here and, and made St.
2: Louis their home? Because they was trying to get out of the South. And, uh, my mother, uh, had a bad experience. Her girlfriend had moved to St. Louis and told her to come. She, she said, well, and she didn't think she was gonna move yet, so she was picking cotton, and she said she had picked cotton very hard that week because she wanted to make some money, to do some things. And so when she went to get paid, the plantation owner told her she had used up her money by getting things from the store, bar, you know, and she's she was so angry, and uh, she uh, she took her kids to her mother's home. And then she came to St. Louis and got everything together, and she came back and brought her children. Mm-hmm. And so—but it was just uh, trying to—and uh, there was a lot of that uh, people trying to get out of the South because— uh, it was just so bad uh, for African Americans. They weren't making any money. They worked hard, but they weren't getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was uh, the main reason why people was, were leaving the southern states, coming to St. Louis and Chicago and Detroit, those kind of uh, northern states.
1: Mm-hmm. And was there anything in the documents that you found really interesting um, that, that shows something about that migration that's included in the book, Nini?
3: Well, I included personal stories of people who had been brought here as children. Um, Charlie Jones, from my own neighborhood, Charlie Jones, I was shocked to find out he was born in Mississippi. Uh, We all knew him as the mayor of Carondelet. Carondelet is my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And he Through his church and involvement in so many neighborhood things took such a leadership role. Uh, Clark Terry's family Mm -hmm. had moved here. He lived in Carondelet before in Mill Creek, and Clark Terry became a—he became the first— uh, black musician in the NBC band. We used to watch him on Johnny Carson every night. Oh, the yes. guy from the neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. Um, There were so many stories of this migration mm-hmm. from the South and the making a new life here. Mm-hmm.
1: Making a new life and uh, the, the lives of people who are notable. That is how this book closes out is with spotlights. And your mother, Calvin, is one of the people who's uh, part of of that spotlight section. Who else was included in that spotlight chapter that was someone you that you really wanted to be in there, Calvin?
2: Well, mm, I think uh, Dr. Lincoln Duguid was a good example of someone that could have been spotlighted because he, uh, he came to St. Louis in 1940. He had a brother here uh, who was a judge, and the Monsanto Company wanted to hire him. These are his words. And uh, he had to pass for white. He could not tell anyone he was uh, black, and he could not hire anyone black. So he, and that was the rules if he got to uh, go and be employed at the Monsanto Company. But he said he chose not to do that and opened his own lab on Jefferson 12, 15 South Jefferson in an old animal hospital where he made his own products. And so I think uh, he uh, is a perfect example of how what African Americans had to go through in order to become successful, Mm -hmm. despite, uh, you know, and that's what he had to do.
1: Yeah. And Nini, in the last moment, um, there's a singer that you would wanted to include. Please tell us very quickly about her and what people can read in the book about her. Grace Bumbrey. Oh my
3: goodness. She um, ended up Being invited to the White House by the Kennedys, and then years later receiving the Kennedy Center honors, and she went to St. Louis Public Grade School and uh, became a great opera star who traveled the world, and she was a product of our school system. Uh, She learned to sing at the Methodist Church, singing along with the choir, Mm -hmm. and then Under Ken Billups at Public Schools, wonderful music instructor.
1: Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot to explore here. Um, And just the last word from each of you, what is it that you hope people will get from this book, Calvin?
2: The truth. <laughs> the, truth. <laughs> the truth. Because a lot, there are a lot of St. Louis history that people are unaware of, and I think they need to know what the truth is and read it and, and be inspired about it and uh, know that uh, what African Americans had gone through and despite still became successful.
1: Mm-hmm. And Nini? Same
3: thing facts and inspiration. Mm-hmm. That's the two words.
1: Okay, facts and inspiration. We'll take those. <laughs> Calvin Riley is founder and director of the George B. Vachon Museum, and Nene Harris is an historian and author of 15 books on St. Louis history. Nene and Calvin, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank
1: you. The song that you are hearing now is St. Louis Rag by Tom Turpin of the Turpin Brothers. I want to make sure we mention that, and that is one of the, the two people in the spotlight section that we heard about today. This episode was produced by Emily Woodbury and by Elaine Chaw. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr.
2: Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer.
0: St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here.